Welcome in everybody to the Longhorn Republic, your source for Texas news, sports, and opinions with a bit of snark built in. We are a podcast of Burn Orange Nation. You can find more great Texas Longhorn coverage over at burnorangenation.com. If you like what we do, please leave us a review. Uh, rating at Apple Podcasts as it helps us get the show out there. Share with your friends wherever you find it, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, anywhere you can find great podcast content. You can find Gerald and myself. Connect with us on social media at Longhorn Pod on Twitter, on Facebook, and Instagram, or Longhorn Republic, or shoot us an email at longhornrepublicpod at gmail.com. My name is Kyle Carpenter. I'm your host this week, like I am every week. And guess who's back, baby? The, uh, the, the father of this podcast, the father of half of a, a basketball lineup, <laughs> and uh, the father of your hearts, Joe Goodridge. Hey, how's it how's it going, man? I uh, yeah, three three kids because we're crazy people. But no, things are things are great in the Goodrich household. It's great to have three children under the age of five. <laughs> Congratulations, you are a brave, incredibly brave man. We have Gerald back this week to do a little preview about something that is is close to both of our hearts because he has a sister who went to Baylor. I have a wife who went to Baylor, so we never want to lose this particular game. This this uh, fan atmosphere is at least a 10 out of 10 in our households. Uh, <laughs> that's all I'll say about that. But yeah, I mean, we're going to we're going to talk a little Baylor today. We're actually going to talk uh, Texas women's basketball preview. We have a good friend of the pod. If you remember from last year's preview, Alex Gomez coming on to talk Vic and the ladies and a top 25 squad on the hardwood. It's uh, it's fun. I'm, I, I've never gotten to I, at least be on this side of the podcast. The uh not having to host, it's it's an interesting feeling. It's kind of like when somebody else drives your car and you sit in the passenger seat. It, it, it is weird, right? And you're like, wait, I have an air vent here? This is odd. Yeah, it's it's inside baseball. Gerald typically leads the, the segments, is the host. I am the co-host. So while Gerald has been out, I have uh, carpeted those DMs and, and am now the host. And Gerald is my co-host until he returns 100% full-time. But Gerald, enough dilling, enough dallying. We have to talk about the Texas Longhorns going on the road to take on number 16 Baylor Bears. Both teams coming out of a bye week. Texas underdog. I guess it's a, a not a neutral site. Might be a pick em. Two and a half point dog. Early one, if you're expecting to tune in on this one on TV, continue your streak of, of brunching with the bigs. And uh, 11 a.m. kickoff <laughs> for the fifth consecutive week. Gerald, this is a six and one Baylor team coming into this game who has won the last two. They did have a loss to uh, Oklahoma State in their three in their third game, but uh, basically won their first four, lost one, and are back on a two game winning streak. Gerald, initial thoughts for the Baylor Bears? Uh, first of all, I'm just really glad that the one in a million is the official like snack of Texas kickoffs at this point, like just go to Don Juan and make that your, uh, your go-to. No, I, I, this is another one where I just don't know what to make of this team, right? Because they're, they are six and one and they're playing really, really well. But like, when you look at their strength of schedule, I looked at like five different sites and they're anywhere from a 48 to an 83, (laughs) depending on how the people like calculate their strength of schedule. So like, I don't know if they're, I mean, they're six, you beat the teams that are in front of you, right? That's, that is what sports are. But when you look at the teams that are in front of them, like the most impressive win is, is, 
Iowa State, maybe mm-hmm. BYU. I don't, those are probably the two that you'd, you'd throw up there. And I don't know if either of those teams are especially great. Now we're in the midst of Brocktober, and we'll talk about that next week. But, like, I just – I still don't know who Baylor is and if they're any good. The last time I said that, Texas came out and crapped the bed. So I'm worried <laughs> that we're setting ourselves up for another Oklahoma State situation. But I just – I don't know what to make of them. Yeah, the strength schedule is an interesting one. I mean, it's basically uh... – Texas, if you use those same sites, looks anywhere from nine to thirty-five in a strength of schedule, right? It's uh, they've played some some ranked teams and and they've played you know some of the better teams in the Big Twelve already, probably the two best right now. Baylor probably that that third best, and give them credit. We'll see how realistic that is. I mean, even again, Oklahoma State is the second best now, seems to be locked in stone, and and that hurts me to say after the amount of losing that game Texas did versus winning it that Oklahoma State did. But anyways, twenty nine twenty four to start the season over Texas State. Baylor fans got a little worried. Then they blew out Texas <laughs> Southern, who again I think it's now two and a half years since they won a football game. Kansas, who right around there, uh, and and they beat. Uh, Iowa State on one of the most ridiculous games of all time. We talked about it on this podcast when it happened, 31-29, a game in which Baylor was outgained by 197 yards and also had 100 penalty yards to Iowa State's 25. Oh, yeah, and also did not win the turnover battle. There is no logical reason uh, that they should have won. They didn't have an offensive touchdown after 537 in the second quarter. They did a lot of it on special teams. They blocked punt, a kick return touchdown, intercepting a two-point conversion with time you know, almost whittling down and then recovering not once but twice the uh, ensuing onside kick. So special teams is how they did that. But again, just a weird, weird, weird one. Early season special teams for Iowa State is the weirdest thing in college football. But then they proceeded to lose a close one, 10 points to Oklahoma State, which again, Oklahoma State offense is really bad. So the fact that you can get down by 10 points, really good defense, uh, says something. They beat West Virginia, who the more I think about it, man, I, we want West Virginia to be good this year. We'll see. Maybe they'll turn a corner, but not a not as quality a win as it may have thought at the beginning of the season. And then a BYU team that was ranked but has lost two in a row to become unranked. So let's let's go back to that, that Iowa State game for just a minute. Like, yeah. I watched it, and it didn't make sense, and I like pulled up the box score, and it didn't make any sense. Yeah. Iowa State had a post-game win expectancy of, like, 60%. Yeah. Like, if you just look at the statistics, and, like, they, they were, like, minus 10 in field position. Like, what is going – like, I just don't – that game still boggles my mind. That, this is why I can't make any sense of this, yes. Kyle. I, I have I had no clue what, what is going on with them. Yeah, in, in, in that losing a game and having a, a win expectancy like that is something reserved for, like, a 2005 – USC team, at least in Matt Leinart's mind, and uh, and and Texas this season. So it's it terrifies me because that that feels like the type of game that Texas loses when they should absolutely win. See the past two Oklahomas, but Gerald, I think even though you have Dave Aranda as the head coach, which kudos to the job he's done, I think you you talk about this Baylor team right now with their offense. To start there, he he brought in BYU offensive coordinator Jeff Grimes, implemented the power spread, and has implemented it well again. Some of the weak competition in the beginning has skewed a bit of this, but they are currently ninth in the NCAA in, in yards rushing with uh, 238 uh, plus a game, 13th in total offense, uh, 471 and 14th in scoring offense at about 38 points. Gerald, do you trust all of those numbers? I mean, they look good in the stats. They look good in the advanced stats. They uh, Those look good. I mean, they, they do look good, but then when you look at like, 
you know, that that number is floated a lot by like 400 yards rushing against Texas Southern, yeah. 300 against Kansas, 300 against BYU, who is, I don't think is a very good football team. But like when you look at Iowa State, Oklahoma State, West Virginia, 123, 107, 171, and they're averaging like half of what they were averaging in those other games, like there there's an argument to be made that that like those numbers are floated by really not great teams. And, and I don't know what the Texas defense is. I don't, I don't, right. I'm not ready to call them great, right. especially against the run. But like, I think they're closer to Oklahoma State and Iowa State than they are Texas Southern and Kansas. Sure. So like that to me spells like, I don't know what Texas is going to do or what Baylor's going to be able to do. Now, now again, we, uh, we say it all the time. You, you play, you beat the teams you play. Uh, but that, that ground number definitely is floated by like three, four ish big games against not great teams. Yeah, so getting into that ground game specifically, right? If you're familiar at all with with the Baylor team, if you've watched any game, you understand that they live and die by the wide zone, which Jeff Grimes brought from BYU. He turned BYU's running back into a a pretty competent running back last year next to Zach Wilson. Um, They have implemented it with Abram Smith and Tristan Ebner, uh, two guys who've been around for a while and kind of are – outperforming what they've done in the past based on the right scheme effectively uh abram smith averaging just you know quite a few yards per carry 105 for 785 10 tds did a lot against byu 27 for 188 three touchdowns against them tristan ebner 77 for 496 with a even better average uh 11 for 95 against byu which is their last game while we're bringing that up they both had a good game if they can do that against texas basically have 200 yards and one guy touching 200 i don't like our chances um <laughs> the, the matchup will have a lot to say this specific matchup about how that that run game goes against texas's front six will will determine a lot of of you know how we're feeling uh, by about 3 p.m leaving leaving waco but neither back is using the pass game they average about a combined 16 yards uh, in the pass game they might get a catch each or something it's it's not a huge part of that game they've had second half issues which you know texas fans uh can empathize with uh, <laughs> against never seen that before no not at all against oklahoma state who again apparently knows how to make halftime adjustments and iowa state another team you know heacock and, and campbell to their credit know how to adjust typically mid-game tell me a little bit about the line in this one because they're getting a lot of credit and maybe deservedly so tell me tell me about the the baylor line well, not yeah, well, the I, old Baylor line, the Baylor offensive <laughs> line. Not not running down in yellow jerseys, but like the people playing on. No, like the the Baylor offensive line has done what they're supposed to do in the ground game, right? They 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 create space for their running backs, they, which is something that I would I would sell a paired organ to see in Austin at times. <laughs> but like they're they're creating like almost four line yards per rush, like three point mm-hmm. seven line yards per rush. So the off the, the running backs are able to make moves without having to deal with the junk, unlike Bijan Robinson, who I th- I haven't looked it up, but he, I think probably still leading the country in yards after contact just because he gets hit at the line of scrimmage basically every time he touches the ball. So like that's inc- like three they, they only they're only stuffed on like 13 percent of their rushes you know defensively texas has about a, a giving up about three line yards per rush and they're only at an 18 percent stuff rate which is super low not what you want to see you want to see the number in the 20s so like that's not necessarily 
something you want to you, you're really excited about and seeing that uh, you know and this is the advantage of I think seeing an offensive coordinator and the offensive line coach come together that yeah. we thought we would see more with Texas and, and Kyle Flood and Steve mm-hmm. Sarkeesian coming over is that um, you know the the offensive line coach followed the offensive coordinator from BYU to Baylor and so like that you're seeing the advantage and that familiarity and I think we're kind of seeing some of it from Texas because I think this line could honestly be worse than they've been playing which is a scary thought um but like i think that right isn't that terrifying it's gonna keep me up tonight no it's the baby's gonna keep me up tonight but whatever um so like that like seeing that happen for Baylor and they they capitalized on some transfers on the transfer portal that gave them a little bit of a kind of an instant jolt there but their offensive line is doing what they need to do when they're creating space for their running backs and you know, Ebner is a really tell. We saw Ebner, he's what, a three or four year guy for Baylor. So like he's been good for a long time. And Abram Smith has come in and honestly set the world on fire a little bit. And he's he's been a, kind of a revelation for them. I think he's second in the conference in rushing, mm-hmm. uh, which is really impressive for a guy that I hadn't heard of, you know, 12 weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. And a couple guys you also probably hadn't heard of. They brought in their starting center, Jake Begall from Buffalo, and they brought in a right guard, Grant Miller from Vandy. And to Eric Mateos's credit, he coached the existing linemen and and brought in new guys and, and uh, you know, really has turned that into something, like you said, with that outside zone, you effectively, Texas is going to need, uh, they're going to need discipline, right? It's just, that is a, that's a whole wide zone, I think is what they call it. But that is a, that it is entirely predicated. If you have a good line, it's predicated on stretching them out, looking for a crease, looking for a guy to get out of his assignment, and then you know they're cutting out or, or getting to the outside uh, and, and and taking off and seeing what you can get at the second level. And it's a you know it's a good scheme. It goes all the way back to the days of Shanahan and, and Terrell Davis with those Denver Broncos teams. It's what you know uh, we've been calling for Texas to run because it it kind of simplifies what your offensive line is expected to do. And again, when you have two new starters and the line that last year honestly wasn't particularly good. If you, are you listen to our Baylor season in preview he said his biggest question mark was the line if the line was good this team would be good well answer the line is good answer the team is good again don't know that they are you know the 16th best team in the country but they could be they very well could be we'll we'll learn a lot on Saturday but they they also they've thrown the ball a medium amount because they've been able to run the ball a lot they haven't <laughs> had to throw it but when they've, it, yeah. when they've dropped back they haven't given up sacks I think they, they've given up less than a sack per game and uh, five, basically five and a half sack yards per game. For reference, Texas is giving up 16 sack yards Whoops. per game, which again, imagine a couple of those each drive just killing a drive. But the pass game is interesting, Gerald, because Jerry Bohannon, we, we didn't know who was going to win this. We, again, in our season preview, had a, a Baylor expert who also didn't know who was going to win it, um, hoped it would be Mr. Bohannon, but he secured that spot and, and hasn't let it go. I think the other quarterbacks have thrown like three passes this year. It's his. Well, he has thrown it 173 times, which again, if you hear those rushing numbers, you, that's, a, that's a high number, 66% completion for over 1,500 yards, a 12-to-1 interception ratio that one INT was last week against BYU in the red zone, actually. Um, so he had went most of the season without, or half the season without an interception. He's a pretty good quarterback, and he's got some decent, targets to throw to and when you have a line that's protecting you and and they run a lot of max protect keeping tight ends and backs in to protect as well to give them a shots downfield you can look 100 percent of your talent level which you know Bohannon had talent and we're seeing probably him close to his his ceiling at least at this level in his development from from what anyone could have expected yeah, I mean, Bohannon came in and he was, you know, a four-star guy, you know, number one player in Arkansas. I think he was 
in the number 10 dual threat guy, I'd have to go back and look at like how he would be re-ranked without like the dual threat pro situation, but he'd be, he'd be a top 15 quarterback in that class. And so like, he's a guy who's got a lot of talent and you're right. Baylor is doing max protect things to help maximize his, uh, maximize his ability and what he's able to do. And I think it's, it's just as much in Bohannon as it is on his receivers. If you look at like the predicted points added for Baylor, the top, I guess three of the top four players and predicted points added on their roster are their wide receivers. Mm. It's, it's Thornton, it's Sneed, uh, Ben Sims sneaks in there at number three. Uh, and then you've got Thornton at number four. So like Sneed, Fleeks, Sims, and Thornton, one, two, three, four on that roster and predicted points added. So like the, the wide receivers are doing, I think just as much, if not more to help Bohannon excel when, and Texas has kind of been begging for this for weeks, but they're the wide receivers are putting the quarterback in position to be successful, right? It's really easy to play quarterback when you've got wide receivers that are catching the ball. I haven't, I need to look up the drop numbers while next time you're talking about like they, they don't drop the ball a ton. They don't make a ton of mistakes. They run pretty solid routes and Bohannon is doing a good job of throwing them open and he's not throwing really bad interceptions. His first interception of the year, I think was a weird one against BYU in the end zone when I was like, yeah. Oh, that was, an uncharacteristic throw in yeah. red zone passing is weird. And I vehemently disagree with passing inside the five yard line, but that's a whole separate <laughs> podcast that we'll have. But uh, that, that to me is really where the passing advantage comes is that the, the bears are the Baylor playmakers are putting themselves in position to make plays and Bohannon is capitalizing on their ability to do so. And so I think Texas has a lot to ho- hopefully can have a lot to say about that. They've made some changes in the secondary. Thompson is moving back to safety to hopefully shore some of that up. They've got more bodies at corner than they do at safety. So it makes sense for that to happen. If, to, if that's the, the secret sauce for Texas and they're able to, um, play have and I think the Thompson we can talk more about that in just a moment, but like the Thompson move, I think is to more make the safeties to make the safeties better in run coverage than they are in the pass pro and pass protect is really where like my mind goes with that. Mm. But like that to me is going to be the matchup is like, can these Baylor wide receivers do what they've done for the last seven games against the Texas secondary that really hasn't shown us a ton in seven games. Yeah. And in Thornton's putting up pretty close to Xavier worthy numbers for a comp to, to Texas. The fans can be familiar with. So he's had some big games. His biggest game against West Virginia, eight catches, 187 yards, two TDs. Uh, West Virginia, I think because they're so aggressive up front, that's the one game Baylor didn't really try to run too much. That's the game they relied on their quarterback, and that's Bohannon's best game. He's only thrown for 270, uh, greater than 270 twice the season. Once was 295 against Texas Southern, and then West Virginia was 345. So they have it in the bag again. That West Virginia team perplexes me, um, but you know it, it. They've they've those five sacks we mentioned. They've only allowed five sacks uh, on on Bohannon all season six total. Ben Sims, the tight end, like you mentioned, doesn't get a lot of catches, but that's four touchdowns. R.J. Sneed, not a lot of touchdowns, but does move uh, some yardage across the middle. Four hundred twenty five catches for three ninety eight, um, and you know it just there's not like. 15 deep weapons, but you don't need to be right. If you have a good running game and you have three, maybe four guys who can scare you a little bit on a, on a given play with the right design. And, and again, with a line that's going to give a quarterback time, it will be interesting. So as much as it's, it's the backs, you know, uh, side of that defense for you, I, I think the, the front, uh, scheme is, is where it kind of begins and ends for me, right? It's, it's Texas's defensive line. It's, it's coach K's scheme versus Baylor's offensive line. Grimes who, uh, you know, Grimes is a former offensive line coach back in 
his day or, and run game coordinator at Boise. He kind of just missed actually uh, Choate and, and PK at their times at Boise. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in the middle there, but at Boise um, and then I believe uh, Auburn, LSU, BYU before coming here. So he's been around. He's run the ball at some schools that run the ball um, and, and he's he's done well, but clearly his, his passing wrinkle has also worked well. You, Zach Wilson's starting for the Jets, but if you look at it, in the, the last three Big 12 games, I'm taking Kansas out of there versus uh, ISU, OSU, and, and West Virginia, who, again, they, they chose to throw the ball in that one. They've averaged 133 yards, which is about 100 yards less than their stated average. So you're right that there is a bit of skew in some of the bad defenses. They are a good rushing team, there's no doubt, but 130 scares me a little bit less than 230. Yeah, I I, I don't know what to... Like, again, I said it off the top, like Baylor, I don't know if they've played a team with the talent level of Texas yet. Oklahoma State is probably the one team sure. that, that gets close, right? And so, and especially Texas getting back overshone from injury, uh, you know, the concussion, I think he's clear. Keaton Crawford is, I think, back as well, or at least he's day-to-day, he'll probably play. Uh, so, like, the expectation is that I think Texas should have some pieces that, that hindered them, I think, against Oklahoma State that I think... That may be a different result if Overshown doesn't pl- miss 80% of the game due yeah. to a concussion. So, like, I – Texas hasn't shown us that they at least yet can play at the level that they should be for four quarters uh, defensively. And so that to me and, – and part of that is complimentary football, and we'll talk about that more yes. on the other half of it. I've got some stats I sent them on Twitter earlier. But, like, that to me is the thing. is like, can the Texas defense put together – and even if they ha- – it's fine giving up points in the fourth quarter. That's what happens. But can they keep the floodgates from falling open completely, especially on the ground against a team that loves to pound the rock? Like, that's the thing to me that really is just like, can that, can that happen? Or is that, is that going – is that trend going to continue? Yeah, I mean the stats of of how Texas defense fares after being on the field for twenty minutes is 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 always is interesting. And Sark talked about it. Fatigue definitely played a factor, but I think also again with this defense and, and similar to the way Oklahoma State broke them late, it's it's contained. It's it's being disciplined even when you get tired. It's you know having having Ojimo, having um, you know having Collins, having Ovi, having those guys you know not overplay and and stay and and you know keep win their individual matchups but kind of stay in their lanes and keep the the back from from breaking off uh those those big chunk 20 yarders um i think will be it but so we have to talk about uh we're talking about a dave aranda team uh we have to talk about baylor's defense which has improved as well from from last year they've moved uh up currently they are the 19th ranked scoring defense um in in ncaa uh going against texas's ninth ranked scoring offense so you tells you that they're they're both good units uh, but stats can also lie because we've seen two games where texas's offense can do things for four quarters instead of you know two or th- three than, than different different outcomes but they're number 30 in points per drive uh 1.7 points per drive number 39 in, in points per play with 5.32 and number 23 an opponent adjusted defensive efficiency gerald providing all the deep analytic stats so they are by any metric good right this is a this is a good defense I mean, that's a, that's a Dave Aranda team, right? Dave Aranda got the job. He was the defensive coordinator for that, that LSU national championship team. Um, that everybody talks about the offense, but that defense was really, really good. And I have a bunch of guys playing in the NFL, but that's neither here nor there. But, like, you know, Dave Aranda is 
he's he's running the Big Twelve defense at this point. It's like a three four three three five base set, right? The it's it, linebackers are, are kind of a weird thing in the Big mm. Twelve overall. It's like what is linebackers and fullbacks are weird things in the Big Twelve because like you're gonna play multiple positions, kid. Uh, but like he's. He's a defensive-minded coach, and he's got really good position coach. He got a, he's he's got Ron Roberts, who's who's his DC, but you know Aranda's probably running that defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joey McGuire at linebackers. They 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 create a lot of turnovers, and I think that's something that, especially after uh, the Oklahoma State game and Casey kind of throwing, you know. W- I don't necessarily count the second one because that was like a, a huck it chuck and we got to make something happen. But that first one was definitely the, the game changer. And so yeah. that's the thing that I'm really curious about is does Casey play within the offense? Does he make his reads correctly or does Baylor punish him, you know, through the air? Yeah. And we, we know that uh, like what Aranda always does and what he's done, especially at Baylor and what Rod Roberts has, has brought in is, is that they are going to pressure. They're going to try to, you know, bring pressure to stop the run. They're going to try to get after you, uh, you know, in, in, when you drop back to pass, that's, that's the MO uh, of this team without a doubt. Um, and what that forces is press man coverage outside, right? They're going to try to slow you down at the line and then run with you. And Rally takes out as a guy we talked about, just a really good receiver, one of the or, uh, cornerback, one of the better in the conference. He struggled a little bit in the, the press man conference. He's, he's more of a bail kind of zone corner who's really smart and savvy and can make plays that way. He does have one interception this year. Um, but think of it kind of the way we've employed um, Jamison a little bit is when you force a guy who's more fast than strong to be pressing at the line, sometimes the fast guy still gives up a step because his technique is off, his balance is off, and there's really fast receivers in this conference. So it'll be interesting because I think that's where Texas wins is if they can challenge deep, they can hold up long enough against the blitz, if they can get some max protect and some blitz pickups and and win those one-on-ones with Texas receivers, I think Xavier Worthy uh, has a chance to, to you know go off in this one um, if he gets that single coverage. Because again, we talk about probably Probably the probably the best player on this Baylor defense, Jalen Petrie, is is uh, nickelback linebacker kind of hybrid. He um, is the difference in a three four to three three five, depending where they they line him up. You know, he's he's asked to do a lot, and he has done it really well. But their linebackers, again, Joey McGuire was named when Rule was still here, the the associate head coach. He carries a lot of clout, and their linebackers certainly do. Terrell Bernard, Dylan Doyle, the Iowa transfer, and Matt Jones combined for 123 tackles. They are number one, two, and four, I believe, or one, three, and four on the team. And then, you know, if you want to call uh, Petrie a a quasi-linebacker, then their tacklers are one, two, three, and four. Um, But Doyle, just an interesting cat so Iowa of him he also has two uh touchdowns as fullback one rushing one receiving and uh I I saw someone somewhere some scout uh say that he might have a chance uh as an NFL his his upside in the NFL is potentially as a fullback rather than a linebacker so just an interesting athlete clearly uh who who likes to hit people right the the linebacker fullback shout out to my dad who is all state in the state of Pennsylvania was those two positions but um (laughs) you know it's an interesting um group because they they seem to be getting better uh, solidifying with their tackles for loss and getting in the backfield with their linebacker group their defensive line with that kind of three-man typically front they will run four occasionally but um is more to soak up blockers like we talked about in We've had many defensive coordinators, so we've talked about a lot of schemes here. Um, but their defensive line has some players on it, there's no doubt. But it's really just uh, the linebackers who dictate how how far this defense goes. Absolutely. And I think their 
Aranda's kind of playing the double-edged sword of a lot of pressure, or a lot of pressure because it requires you to play man coverage, right? And pressing at the line. And so you, I think you mentioned it already, but the ability of a guy like Xavier Worthy to, to beat somebody in one-on-one coverage, which I don't know if there's a defensive back in the conference fast enough to play with him step for step. So if he's even, he's leaving, right? Mm. So if, but that also hinges on the fact can the offense, can Texas create looks to keep Bernard and Doyle and, and Jones and even um, Jalen Petrie from playing in the backfield, playing on the other side of the ball? Uh, because if Casey Thompson does have time, I'm fairly confident that the, the Texas wide receivers can win some one-on-one matchups because you can only pr- play man coverage for so long until somebody's open. Like that's, that's yeah. just football. That's how yep. defensive backs work is you can, because the offense, the, the wide receiver knows where he's going and the defensive back doesn't. And so that's how football works is if you're playing man coverage, the longer the, pl- the longer the quarterback has to read, the more likelihood you'll have one, two guys open. And so where these, a guy who's shown he's fast and he runs good routes. I'm curious to see if they get Moochie Dixon some more run because mm. he's another speedster. You'll, you'll obviously have Josh Moore, who's who's on the taller side. He's not as, as fast, but I don't know if Baylor has a defensive back that's as tall as he is. So like, mm. that's a thing to look at as well. And so you'll also have, um, you know, Texas has not a ton of options, but they've got options at wide receiver. And so that's the thing to me is right. Is can the Texas offensive line do what they haven't done for the last two weeks? And that's allow Casey Thompson to have a lot of time to make his reads and to capitalize on what should be an advantage for Texas, which is one-on-one coverage against some, some solidly talented wide receivers. Yeah, and, and a lot of their interceptions where they've gotten them have, have not necessarily come from those cornerbacks. Petrie has two. Their safety, JT Woods, has two over, over top. A lot of their interceptions have come because of the pressure they've gotten. And it's it's they flipped a switch, right? The first five games of the season, they had 15 hurries, six sacks in five games. The last two games, 11 sacks. 10 hurries. So they're, they're getting after the quarterback against uh, West Virginia and BYU. They had five sacks against BYU, six uh, against West Virginia. And that West Virginia game, Siaka, I believe it, uh, Apu is his nickname, Apu Ika, um, which which I, I love that name. But he transferred from LSU with Aranda, was a kid from, from Utah, has family on the BYU staff. Um, you, you know, he's an interesting kid in that game. Didn't play as, as much because BYU just came out and threw the ball uh, a ton. Um, but he did against West Virginia have two sacks. Um, he's a guy who typically is, you know, Haloti Naga. I think the, the 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 Baltimore Ravens just big mountain of a defensive tackle in the middle, six four, three fifty, by Ooh. far the the biggest uh, defensive tackle that Texas will play. Think about a Coburn. Think about a a uh, Sweat. You know that they, it's that level of of guy that Baylor has, and they're really the only other team that has one. Um, but it, you know, it hasn't just been that they've been getting from their linebackers from, you know, from some players coming in and in blitzing situations, they've been able to get the quarterback down. So it's not only beating those receivers, it's holding up long enough for Casey to be able to do that. But of course, this is a, an offense. We know that, you know, Bichon is going to do his thing, right? It, it, Brees Hall had a pretty good game against this team and, and, Bijan is every bit as talented as Brees Hall, and I'm going to go ahead and say it. Controversial take. Maybe not actually at all. Um, and then some, right? Like he has talent that Brees does, in, and, and then some, right? And that's not talking also about the, the wrinkle he has in the passing game, but just purely uh, as a runner. It's why he leads the Big 12 and rushing stats. He's 
gonna be you know a difference maker without a doubt there 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 are rushing yards to be had against this team but they are their defense that seems to be hitting their stride as their linebackers are really forming the identity of that team so it will that that group will dictate both phases of the game for me both rushing and passing and, and again that texas line if they can show something they can hold up you know, if Jake Majors can hold that big in ahead of him, if if they're they're one unit in their their protections and their slides, if they can if they can maul a little bit in their own zone running game, then then I think there's there's a lot of meat on this bone for for this Texas offense, which you know a Sark team they want to be good on offense. Coming out of a bye week, they want to have some things dialed up. Going into the second half after the pass two, they want to keep their foot on the gas. So let's talk special teams uh, as the last unit because, again, we, Baylor won a game purely, purely with special teams. So you, you can't not talk about it. They're a team that obviously prioritizes the kicker. Isaiah Hankins is, is solid. He hasn't tried over over 48 yards with 7 for 8 this year. They have a separate kickoff specialist who has 85% of his kickoffs for touchbacks. Um, and they, you know, they've had had some onside kicks this year. They had a surprise onside against BYU after taking a 17-7 to lead. It, it effectively turned the momentum of the game in the first half when they stole that possession for a chance for BYU to keep it a you know a three-point game going into half if they could have driven and scored so you know they will try some things uh, again the onside kick is probably sneaky because they have a guy who boots it out of the back of the end zone typically um, mm-hmm. but you know they will try things there they have a punter who in that Iowa State game was Dixon-esque you know he had a 54.5 average and a 52.8 net uh, dropped uh three of them inside the 20 just a a a good player who in both their kickers punter and kickoff specialist three all solid couldn't ask for a whole lot more I don't know that again they're all NFL guys but they're guys that are great big 12 level kickers yeah and that neutralizes I think an advantage that Texas has over some teams like the Iowa State game is is a weird one because we, we've all talked about it and we'll talk about it again when Texas plays Iowa State next week. They don't have a special teams coordinator, right? And so, like, that, that is a little bit of we saw how that worked under Charlie Strong. Uh, the Texas special teams fell apart a couple of times. So that's a weird thing. But, like, this is a definite advantage for Baylor. Like, they have their they're plus five in average starting field position where they're starting at the 30, other teams are starting at the 25. And so, like, you don't think that five yards is a difference when it's a game of attrition. Five yards is, is a game-winning field goal. Mm-hmm. And so, like, we could see some of that with two teams that are probably going to ground and pound a little bit. So, like, that's the thing that jumps out to me is, is Baylor's ability to neutralize that advantage, which Texas clearly has over most teams in the conference. Jamison, Worthy, those are two all-conference returners if they get the ball in their hands, but it doesn't seem like they're going to get their ball in their hands very much. Yeah, only 94 kickoff return yards allowed through seven games, only 14 punt return yards. That's two yards per game allowed. So, again, it's it's tough. The, the thing is, is you, you think about when we talk special teams with with this team, you think about Tristan Ebner, who last year you know somehow uh, beat out Jamison for the all-conference returner. He is really good. He got his third career touchdown with a 98-yard kickoff return touchdown against that, again, you heard it. Iowa State game also ripped off a 41-yard punt return in that fourth quarter that led to a the I believe the go-ahead field goal and and had a 50-yard punt return against Kansas. The, outside of those three returns, however, they have not really had a whole lot to speak of. But 
I mean, again, those are three game-changing uh, returns. Not that they necessarily needed to be against Kansas, but certainly against uh, against Iowa State, and and they also blocked a punt against Iowa State. So you know, it's it's interesting to look at there. And then I threw it in this section, although we we talk about the kick, the punt, and everything. The uh, the penalties I'm going to throw here just as a, as a place to catch it. Um, they're currently uh, averaging nine, I think, one more penalty and nine yards more per game than Texas, which you know is good. They did have zero. penalties penalties for zero yards though against BYU. Texas has had some of those in their big blowout wins uh, against Rice and uh, I believe uh, Louisiana and, and Tech all those games they were pretty low in penalties. Even Arkansas not a ton of penalties but uh, they've their numbers have gone up a bit if they happen in an opportune situation to watch out for that but uh, again Baylor seemed to clean some things up in the uh, the religious bowl against BYU <laughs> so uh, zero there is, is an interesting stat. Yeah, I mean the. I'm running out of things to say about about Baylor being able to to really neutralize and, and take advantage of I think what Texas does poorly, but um, you know there and I think the the thing that I'm the biggest switch I saw right Baylor was not a good football team under Dave Aranda, and I was very convinced that it was going to be a bust last year, uh, and then it seems like something switched to Dave Aranda, and we've seen it. In the special teams, we've seen it on third downs and the way they kind of sell out on some things. That Dave Aranda last year was playing, was coaching like a defensive coordinator, mm. where he was playing very conservatively and he was rightfully trusting his special teams a lot when he should have been more aggressive. But Baylor going for it on eight, going for it on fourth downs 18 times, like that's a night and day, like 180 from last year. And so with Aranda kind of letting the offensive guys be the offensive guys um, and playing to win football games rather than not to lose and I don't mean say I don't mean coaching like a, de- like a defensive coordinator as a, as a as a derisive right because there's some really good defensive coordinators turned coaches but but Dave Aranda was playing last year to make sure he didn't put his defense in weird spots and he was and it was handicapping the offense significantly and so that's been the big shift for me because we see it in their their fourth down conversions again mm-hmm. they're not super great on third downs but they're really good on fourth downs and so that terrifies me especially with Texas uh the last couple of games again it was a strength three weeks ago four weeks ago and now it's like uh, I don't know yeah and, and Texas has gone forward a lot I thought Sark has been aggressive and when I looked at the stats and, and I think Texas is uh averaging 2.1 of those a game I said yeah that's a lot going forward on fourth more than twice uh Baylor's averaging more than two and a half they're at 2.6 fourth down attempts per game so you know they they they're going for it, and they've converted 72 of those. Uh, UT is uh, only, uh, I think, 54%. They have 7 out of 13. So they are deadly on, even if, like you said, not as good at third down, deadly on fourth. In the red zone, 30 trips, 23 touchdowns for a 76%. Uh, touchdown percentage, 90% scoring percentage. They have four field goals, so they're scoring, and, and a good chunk of them touchdown. So that'll be a really key thing to watch for the Texas defense if they can add to that uh, that field goal tally or even to the the interception fumble downs no uh no score tally. Maybe maybe play on uh the aggressiveness of Aranda, but I think with that running game they have out of their 23 touchdowns, 15 of those it seems are rushing. So they're going to they're going to pound the ball. So uh you know, what that offensive line comes in handy now defensively on third downs they're Pretty elite, only giving up 32%. Their Texas is coming in averaging 48% on third down. So the fourth down, they've given up a few more, 8 for 12 this year. So it, it'll be interesting to see who's the most aggressive. And then again, in the red zone, defensively, pretty solid. 
20 trips, only 13 touchdowns, uh, five field goals. So again, 90% score, but uh, 65% touchdown rate, which is a full 10% less. Remember what Sark said, the red area, you trade field goals for touchdowns, you win games, right? So hidden yardage, the, the special teams, the penalties, those things, they've won at least one game already. Bill Parcells famously said for every 100 yards of hidden yardage, uh, seven points on the board. Um, and then red zone kind of execution for both of these teams will say a lot for how we how we feel if Texas is a 500 team or has another ranked win under their belt. And I think we, we said it going into the, the Oklahoma State-Oklahoma run that like that would really tell the, the story of the season. And I think coming out of the Baylor game, we'll know what this is going to be. And especially these next two weeks will really decide whether this season is, is frustrating but showing progress or if this is, I'm not going to say unmitigated disaster, but that's the first <laughs> thing that comes to my mind uh, in the first year under a new coach. Uh, well, speaking of unmitigated disaster, Jared, let's talk about this Postradamus uh, competition we have going on. Um, we typically allow me to go first, but I am I am assuming the hosting duties today. So, Jared, let's mix it up. I would like for you to start us off uh, with your first Postradamus. So I I waffled back and forth, and some of this may be a caffeine-addled um, – <laughs> You know, wild, wild mess. But my first Potsdamus pick um, is that Bijan Robinson will go for 125 on the ground against Baylor. 125 on the ground against Baylor. I just really think, like, when I look at what, like, uh, Brees Hall was able to do against them and guys that are that are on similar planes. Now, Texas doesn't have as good of an offensive line, but I really think even with the offensive line playing the way they are, I think Texas is probably going to devote a couple of guys um, to that massive nose tackle that, that Baylor has mm-hmm. um, and let Bijan kind of make it. If they're not running outside zone and letting Bijan just like see grass, hit grass, they're, they're calling the offense wrong. And I think Sark is very aware that that's his biggest advantage, or at least he should be. So I think that, that they're going to pound Bijan and Bijan's going to hit a buck 25 on the ground. Buck 25. So buck 18 of that in the first half and seven in the second half. I kid, I it. kid, I kid. Uh, <laughs> um, that's only if we're up by 40 and they take him out at, 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 in the third quarter. But uh, right. so, Gerald, I'm going to throw a bit of trivia before I get to mine because this step blew my mind. Since the 2017 season when, when some of these older recruits stepped on campus, do you have any idea how many one-possession games Texas has been in? Oh, how, what's, my, what's my time frame? Uh, 2017 to to now to 2021. <laughs> so they play 12 games a year. Yeah, right, so, right, right. Um, I I want to say like 15. 15 feels right. 15 feels high, but it's actually oh, wow. 30. It's 30. <laughs> the number is 30. They've been in oh, 31 possession games. I threw out a high number, and it wasn't high enough. 30 is silly, stinking. It's ridiculous. I, I like, if you don't follow football that closely and you listen to this podcast, like, thanks, uh, we love it. But, I mean, for anyone who watches football with any level of granularity, that's that's a, that's a an insane number. That's not sustainable. That's ridiculous. I mean, they played, like, 55 games, basically, right. and that's, that's, that's more than half. That's, yes, yes. It is utterly ridiculous. Okay, so that's, that's established. Texas Good currently, night. Texas currently a two-and-a-half-point dog. Gerald, I'm coming out Big swing in here. I'm only asking for one point if I get this, but I'm swinging big. Texas 
uh, seniors who got here in 17 will not play their 31st one-possession game. This will not be a one-possession game. Now, I am leaving a backdoor cover here if Baylor beats us by more than than one possession. (laughs) But I am going to say this will not be a one-possession game, and I'm skewing heavy in the favor that Texas is going to get this one by nine points. If I feel like if Baylor wins by two scores, we should take one point from you because that feels like <laughs> I just I I'm not a I'm not a fa- I'll be so mad if that happens. I worded it how I worded it. <laughs> Kyle always the consummate lawyer. <laughs> All right, Joe, what do you got next? My second Pod Stradamus pick. I I always struggle with with the defensive one. I always try to do one offense, one defense. Um, but I think that. The Texas defense is going to – I think they're going to see what BYU did a couple weeks ago, and I think they're going to have at least one interception off of the interception list, Mr. Bohannon. Ooh, so he's he's going to double his total from zero heading into BYU to two uh, heading out of this one at least. I love it. All right, so at least one interception from Bohannon is your second one. I love so, that. So for mine, I'm going to go the opposite direction Baylor averaging again 240 yards three rushing touchdowns a game Texas giving up over 200 yards rushing a game we talked about the reasons that that's been for Texas defense I think they spent the bye week trying to figure that out trying to figure out you know run fits trying to make sure people are healthy trying to understand uh, they, they know what what Baylor wants to attack with Baylor knows what they want to attack with so I'm going to go ahead and say that Baylor will not get 240 yards. Texas will not give up 200 yards. This sounds like the saddest prediction ever, but with a team that we spent a lot of time talking about, identified by the wide zone, by running the ball with two really good running backs and a quarterback who's honestly, he's got like four rushing touchdowns himself, I think, um, and and can run the ball pretty well in Bohannon, Texas will not give up 200 yards rushing in this game is my, my second pick. I, okay, if if that happens, I think Texas. I think Texas also hits on your multi-score thing. So I think I, you're you're definitely double dipping with that. I think that's that is a. Uh, I I'll I'll believe it when I see it. But if I see it, uh, we'll be very happy. I am wishful ideating. Uh, I'm putting this into the into the atmosphere. All right, so. There's our Podstradamus, Gerald. Uh, I hope you get both of yours. I hope I get both of mine. But if I don't, you're closing that gap. So we are thrilled to now welcome in a familiar face. If you remember last year, joined us to preview this exact team in this kind of same same period of time. But we're going to have good friend of the show, Alex Gomez, come in and talk about the women's basketball team. Number 25 heading into the season. Uh, just had their first glimpse of the orange and white scrimmage. Feeling is beginning to look a lot like basketball. We gave you last week our men's basketball preview, and we are excited to spend a little time looking at the women's team on the hardwood. Alex, thank you so much for, for joining. How's it going? Absolutely. It's going well, man. Uh, thank you guys so much for, for having me. That's one of the things that I love to do every year is, is talk about Vic Schaefer and, and Texas <laughs> basketball. Um, so I'm glad I could share some insight on what we have coming up this season. Absolutely. So yeah, you're right. You can't talk about this team without the coach, the identity uh, that he wants in year two should be a little bit more uh, imprinted as he gets his first off season really with the team after last year. I think you said not until September could he even do five and five. So it's his first chance to really try to shape this team up in his image. If you don't remember year one was a great year, uh, a year that, that had its, its understandable lumps in the regular season, but ended in a Cinderella kind of elite eight uh, run after a 1911 
uh, 19 wins, 11 losses, a record in the regular season, made the tournament with a canceled tournament the year before. It was everything we needed. It was in San Antonio. I think it was the magical run that got us all excited. From that team, however, Vic said in his, his uh, preseason uh, Big 12 media days that they, they have more new players than returners. It's going to look a little different. And, and at the top, you can't talk about this team without talking about number one draft pick, Charlie Collier, who went first in the, the WNBA draft last year. The last time Texas replaced a top two draft pick who wore the number 35 jersey, a Texas Longhorns men's basketball team won a school record 31 games a share of the Big 12 title and made an elite run themselves in 2008 after Kevin Durant uh, was drafted by then the Sonic. So I don't know. I don't know. That might seem lofty, but Alex, start us off. I mean, that, that this this is a good team, but how do you replace Charlie Collier? I think it's definitely going to be tough. Uh, you know, uh, I think one of the biggest things for, for him is has always been having an elite uh, post player, an elite scorer. Um, that's one of the things that I, I feel like this team uh, is going to struggle with for sure coming up uh, this season. You know, you obviously have Ebo, who's, who's going to be a crucial part. You saw her step out uh, last season. Um, but I think, I think that we're seeing another superstar blossom in uh, Deanna Gaston. And mm. I think that, that she's going to be the key to filling that role. Um, and, and maybe, you know, not to, not to see the conversation off of Charlie because what she did was incredible and what she's doing in the WNBA is incredible, but there might even be a bigger loss um, with Johnny Harris, you know, heading to Auburn, you know, she, she was destined to be a, a head coach and, and it's, it's long overdue. Um, and, you know, we might be talking about her in a different job right now with the Mississippi state job coming open um, mm-hmm. had she not taken Auburn. Um, but to me, that's a huge loss, you know, losing Johnny, um, you know, somebody that Schaefer has, has really become great friends with great coaches with, you know, he helped build Mississippi state with her. um, And then obviously, you know, laid the blueprint here in, in uh, Texas. Um, That's going to be a big loss. So the combination of the two is, is huge, but um, equally, you know, he went out and and brought in a lot more talent, uh, you know, via the transfer um, portal. And then of course, um, you know, recruited extremely, extremely well, like he always has. So that definitely helps, um, you know, coming into the season when you can pretty much handpick who you want to, to join the roster. And, and I think he was pretty much able to do that. Yeah. And you, you, you replace again, a WNBA number one overall pick, but like you said, you also, you know, there, there's other pieces, Johnny Harris, you've never heard a single person in the world say a bad word about her, just a beloved figure, a, a critical figure, but do you think about the team as well. Kyra Lambert now playing pro ball in Turkey, Celeste Taylor transferring to Duke. They accounted those three alone, uh, Collier, Lambert, and Taylor accounted for 53.5% of the roster scoring. There were some other uh, not quite as significant. You know, you never want to lose anyone, but Chrismo Ortiz went to Cal. Alyssa uh, Coleman will be at UTSA and Preston Johnson no longer with the team. So there is uh, a good amount of turnover. I think Vic always knew though, that he was going to be bringing people in. So it may be more of people getting out of the way and knowing, Hey, there's, there's some, some people on my heels and coming in for these spots. And that, that may have been more than anything, but um, it's not just a team that is, is losing a lot. They are returning a couple really key pieces. And, and I think you can't talk about this roster without talking about the experience, the two players who are going to lead this team. We'll talk about some young ones, but Joanne Allen Taylor, you came on 
this podcast last year and said, watch out for her. She might very well just be the second best player and emerge as kind of the go-to when, when teams are taking Charlie away. So you were, were spot on that she was a, a great addition and, and piece uh, for, for the Longhorns last year, led the nation in minutes played, over 1,000 minutes played. Uh, 12 points a game, 36% from deep, second on the team in steals. Just a just a great player who can do a lot of things. And then Audrey Warren, senior, the, both seniors, just tough, does it all. Probably I could never find the stat, but I think, in my opinion, led the, led the country in, in charges taken, third on the team in steals, double digits points. How much of this team's identity with replacing a coach, replacing a number one pick, replacing those players we talked about uh, is Vic and those two seniors? Oh, no, it's it's everything, really. I mean, if you could encompass what Vic Schaefer wants in a basketball player, I don't think you could you could really find anything better than Joanne Allen Taylor and Audrey Warren. I mean, you know, you, there's there's not a lot to knock um, knock in their game. You know, uh, I, they they do go cold offensively at times, but they match they match that with, you know, their their streaky play and and how hot they can get. But especially on the defensive end, I mean, you know, that is a tough defense to execute. I mean, you are running nonstop. I mean, it is it is go, go, go defense like like really I, I can't think of of a team that that runs that kind of play all the time. And I mean, he does it so well. And that's where they that's where they, you know, can shine. They can quickly get the ball up the court. You know, they can take it to the hoop after, you know, grabbing a steal or, uh, you know, a block shot. And, and, you know, I just really don't think that he could ask for any more than those two players. You know, he, he had very close to that, you know, at Mississippi state and, and even in Arkansas when he was an assistant head coach. Um, but I mean, they are the perfect example of, of what he wants um, and, and, and what he demands from his players. Uh, the biggest thing I, I think really and the biggest storyline of, of the entire season coming up is, is can Audrey Warren stay healthy? You know, can mm. she stay off the ground? Can she, uh, you know, be able to protect her head, you know, wear her mouth guard, um, which was a big storyline really all throughout last season. You yeah. know, I know she was in concussion protocol, um, you know, at least a time or two. Uh, and that's going to be the biggest thing to me because she is, the team just plays differently when she's on the floor. Yeah. Uh, you know, she demands a higher level. And, and, and that's going to be the biggest thing I, I think um, when it comes to those two. Yeah. And, and you, you, no matter who you get in there, you can't replace that nastiness, but they do bring back a couple of their players who played a little bit less on last year's team, but it certainly contributed. Um, and, and I'm going to save one for last because I think, you know, we, we're going to want to talk about, uh, talk about Miss Gaston, who you, you previewed there. Um, Shay Holly played a little bit as a guard, Macy, some more time from Westlake was a big recruit, uh, may get some time there. Ashley Chevalier was, was a player who in her minutes, uh, looked good and should see a, a kind of bump up and a step up uh, second on the team in steals per minute last year um, may run the point. If the young players we're going to talk about in a little bit, don't immediately step in. It sounds like in some of the practice, she's been taking that role. Um, and then Lauren Ebo, who, as you said, is a, another experienced player, another, you know, has a lot of minutes in the post. She's a senior played most of her career at Penn state came in last year, got her, her waiver average, you know, 4.7 points per game and four point uh, four rebounds per game. And then again, Dayona Gaston, a big recruit, um, six foot two, not big in recruiting rankings, but also a big player. Uh, missed most of her freshman season with a shin injury. She's originally a Vic commit. Mississippi State flipped with him to Austin. Um, you know, she went in her flashes, looked like she could have it all. Um, you know, had 
I think in her 11 games that she played almost two blocks a game, just, just looks like she can change a game on both ends of the court. So out of those other players, who are you expecting a lot from? You know, one of the people that, that we we've yet to, to bring up. And, and I think that there's a reason that Vic Schaefer went to get her as soon as she really was available as Aliyah Matharu. Uh, you know, she yeah. were, was recruited by him at Mississippi state. She's, you know, a very tenacious defender. Um, and she really showed great improvement from the three point line um, her last season at Mississippi state before she transferred out. I, I really think that there's a reason that he went after her um, and it's yet to show up in, in scrimmages and it's yet to show up, uh, you know, in the media, but, but I, like I said, I really feel like she could be an X factor at guard, um, you know, especially with, with uh, in the rotation with Audrey Warren and, and uh, Joanne Allen Taylor. I think that she's going to be um, a really important piece and it may be off the bench. Um, but I think that she's a player that will have leadership, understands exactly what Vic Schaefer is about. Um, you know, another former highly rated recruit. Um, I really think that she's going to be um, a really important piece here, uh, you know, especially with several assistant coaches gone, you know, a little bit of new waters for Vic Schaefer, kind of the first coaching, um, you know, shakeup for him in, in several years, um, you know, getting somebody in who understands the routine, understands exactly what he's about. And, and to me, that's what makes her um, interesting um, coming into the season. And I believe is, is Jackson Durrett the only remaining Mississippi State coach on on the staff who's who's has any Vic experience, right? Other than, you know, the off field, uh, you know, off court Obviously. coaches, you know, but yes, um, yeah. both both new uh, and their name eludes me at this moment. Um, but both ladies, uh, one one was from Cal and, and one was from uh Dayton, I believe. Yeah. Um, Calamity Mac, uh, McIntyre. I know that she's related to, to Reba McIntyre. So that's exciting. Yeah, that's a great, that's as Texas as it gets. And <laughs> I feel like, um, you know, she's, uh, she's going to be a great, a great fit in, in April. Her, like I Phillips. said, her last name. Yes, there we go. Yeah. Um, really in a April Phillips is, is to me, um, he went after her for one reason. And that's because she is um, a tenacious recruiter. I mean, mm -hmm. just, is, is known for that um, all across uh, women's basketball. Um, and, and you need that whenever you lose uh, Johnny Harris, who was, you know, maybe one of the best recruiters in women's basketball um, at this, at this moment, other than, you know, maybe some of the coaches at UConn who, who have that going for them, but sure. um, <laughs> you don't have to recruit much, uh, you know, up there. So I so, definitely think that, that, that uh, the coaching staff, um, you know, and that's going to be different for him this year. And you talk about new coaches and, and breaking them in and, and getting the Vic Schaefer way. You have seven. We, we listed off six returners, but the, the majority of this team, as Vic said himself, are, are new players. You have seven new players. You basically bring in a recruiting class of four top 40 players, uh, including some in, in the single digits, uh, and then three uh, very interesting transfer so let's talk about that that class coming in first because there's some names here that fans should know because i feel like there could be some pretty immediate contribution so Aliyah moore rory Harmon, and kendall hunter uh moore is kind of the all everything commit she's a, a big 12 preseason freshman of the year just a to me a walking mis mismatch physical dominant good footwork and score, you know, through contact in the post at the high school level, there is a transition, but six, one, you know, we'll, we'll step in as, as another, again, 
a towering above six foot, which this roster has a lot of just, just seems like everyone is expecting her to immediately be great. And that's a lot of expectation, but um, what, what do you think from, from her or even the other guards coming in who are high school teammates at Harmon and Hunter? Yeah, absolutely. I think that Aaliyah Moore is, is definitely going to have, you know, an immediate impact um, more so than the other, the other two. Um, but, you know, the other two are the ones who really intrigued me because, yeah. you know, back, back uh, in April, I, I wrote an article about, um, you know, what Vic Schaefer had in front of him and, and how he was looking to, uh, he wasn't rebuilding Texas by any means, you know, he was just retooling, you know, making it his own, uh, remodeling, so to speak. Mm. And, uh, when I talked about three players uh, that I thought he would go after, two of those players were Harmon and Hunter. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I thought Jada Malone, who ended up committing to Texas A&M, um, was really going to was going to come here. She's everything that that he wants, um, you know, in that forward center type role. But when you look at that Kendall specifically, and there's there's something that really stands out to me about her. Um, and it's that she's five, seven and rebounds the ball mm. like she's six, seven. Um, and <laughs> for him to have a guard um you know, that's able to rebound the ball. It's, it's another, just one of his qualities. And it's, and it's one of the things that, you know, he has always, everybody talks about his bigs, everybody talks about, but when you look back at his great teams, you know, it was, it was really incredible guard play that, that got them, um, you know, to their final four runs and, and their elite eight runs. And, and I think that that was true for last year too. You know, you look at Celeste Taylor who turned it on um, when she had to in the NCAA tournament, Um, you know, you could argue that she might've been the biggest star of the team, you know, in the NCAA tournament. And, and, and that's what I think a lot about Kendall is in in that similarly similar role, um, you know, being five, seven, being a really good defender, um, you know, she's really quick off the dribble. She fits a lot of, of similar things. Cause that's another thing that Celeste did incredibly well um, was rebound the ball uh, from the guard spot. And, and so, you know, with her being the 32nd uh, ranked player in the class, obviously she's good at, at a lot more um, than just that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that she's going to be incredible. And then, you look too at, at Rory, you know, she's, I think five, four, five, five. I don't know. She's, she's a lot like some other um, point guards that I can think of that Vic Shaver had the undersized, just quick off the bounce mm-hmm. um, point guard. And she's even higher. I think she was 20th. Um, I think she might've been like the sixth rank guard in the class, um, but she's got handles like nobody's business. And um, it's another, another, you know, play initiator, that I think that he is really going to lean on, um, you know, come, come later on. I don't know how much action the two guards get. I, I feel like you have to earn yeah. uh, Schaefer's respect, um, you know, to be a guard in his offense. Um, so definitely I think you will see Aaliyah more, a lot more. Um, but, but those two Hunter and Harmon, um, they really do fascinate me at least um, towards the end of this season and, and, and into next year. Yeah. Vic Schaefer though, he, he, you know, left Mississippi state as a program builder, right? He, nothing is, is a one year, you know, decision. He'll bring in t- transfers, but the, the, the recruits he's getting in, he's thinking about building a program. And, and I think you're exactly right. Roy Harmon to me, one of the, you know, to get both of those players out of the, the co Houston players of the year, basically who are also teammates who are just elite together. They, I think going back to middle school, they were like, arch enemies on opposing teams and they came together. It's like, how will these two play together? Swimmingly. Absolutely amazing. They're best friends. They get along great. They play off of each other. Harmon, you know, just a great one-on-one score. I think ESPN had her as high as number 10 in this class. I mean, just the, the upside is through the roof, but another player, you expect that to be okay. That's an elite recruiting class. Well, they got 
another one just a couple weeks before class um, out of Canada, originally committed to Syracuse. Uh, if you're not familiar, there was some uh, issues that led to their coach um, resigning. And so Latasha Lattimore, who's, you know, Vic called her a top 40 uh, player in the country, depending on the rankings, she's somewhere right around there in different rankings, uh, who is a, a forward, almost center six, four, late addition to add uh, is, is, is crazy to have just a big athletic, big come, you know, flying in two weeks before class, any school in the country would kill for that. No, absolutely. And, and when I look down at my notes, you know, I, I take notes before I get ready to do these things. I could, don't think I could have written Latasha Lattimore any bigger on my paper, um, you know, <laughs> four star six, four, uh, you know, everything that, you know, you think of when you think of a big, um, you know, UCLA made a tremendous run. And, and a lot of people thought, um, you know, that, that UCLA was, was really going to scoop her out. Texas kind of came out of nowhere, um, you know, late in her game, at least, at least as I recall. And I mean, she can rebound. Uh, you know, I, I watched some of her tape uh, just a couple of days ago and she can rebound um, better than, than I've ever seen anyone coming out of, you know, high school. Wow. Um, she's going to, be phenomenal and and defensively as well she's very polished um, as a defender um, which is you know something that a lot of players have to grow into um, early on um, and of course it does help that she's 6'4 um, I'm, I'm sure that that pads the stats a little bit um, but she's very wise with her hands you know she's not as clumsy um, and and that's one of the things that that you've learned you watch bigs under Vic Schaefer uh, Tierra McCowan was that way. Uh, De- you know, Deanna Gaston was that way in, in, in spurts of their season where, you know, they almost don't look natural with the ball, you know, they on defense and they, they have to learn how to use their bodies almost a lot mm-hmm. of times. And that's, that's one thing that, that um, Johnny Harris was phenomenal at was, was just teaching them and, you know, being comfortable with being six, four, it's okay. Uh, you know, that, that you are, you know, six, four, you're, you're going against smaller girls and uh, they do such a phenomenal job at, at coaching down there. Um, you know, it's just watching their practice. It's like watching poetry when they're coaching the bigs. It's, it's really incredible. Um, and I think that, that Latasha Lattimore is going to be um, a superstar, um, you know, in women's basketball, not just at Texas, um, but she's got upside written all over. Oh, I love that. That's so glad to hear. I saw she was taking on the uh, used to be the Kevin Durant, but now the, the obviously Charlie Collier, number 35, which, you know, I love a freshman coming in again, a, a, a big player who, who uh, doesn't shy away from taking those comparisons on right away. So that's, you, you just love that mentality, but I love to hear you say uh, it's backed up with the promise. So we'll be curious to watch her. And then two players who, have proven it at a level beyond high school, but not necessarily at the big 12 or, or just, you know, division one college basketball, they brought in two of the best junior college players. I think there were two separate lists that I saw and each list had one of these as the number one at one point. Um, we'll start with the guard because I love the name. Uh, Kobe King, Hawaii, uh, who transfers from Casper college originally from Australia, but is New Zealand. She will be, be, uh, important to point out to you as a Kiwi, uh, but moved from Australia to the States um, 20 averaged over 20 points a game, seven rebounds, five assists was a Juco all American. Uh, again, at one point, the number one Juco commit had a triple double, a 10 steal triple double or time up there. Just a, a player who I think could come in and instantly contribute again. There will be a step up in competition. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but just, just a, 
an elite player. And again, you don't, you don't name your daughter Kobe. I think she has this as a, a sister named LeBron as well. And that's not a joke um, without knowing and, and that this is a player who you're going to expect to go do big things. Oh yeah. And I mean, that's the, the crazy thing about her is, I mean, she's, she's five eleven, and I mean, she plays like she's six, four. I mean, and she's such a fluid scorer, um, you know, and like you said, you, you don't name your kid Kobe um, by accident. Um, <laughs> so she, she really is uh, incredible. My, my question about her was just how does her defense transfer over um, to, you know, um, you know, big time basketball, but, uh-huh. but scores, scores are scores. You know, if you score in uh, you know, AAU, you, you scored in college, you know, it all transfers over. It really does. You know, people that can get buckets can get buckets. And and that's just how it is. And, and Kobe's going to be that way. I think that uh, Vic knew he was going to need points. You know, you, you don't lose 53 points a game um, and, and, you know, come into the next season, you need somebody that's going to be able to score the basketball. And I, I think she's going to be able to do that um, and do that efficiently. Um I like her. If I, if I had to choose the number one Juco player, I'd go her. I mean, that's no knock on, on anyone else, but um, she's a huge get. Um, and it's somebody that, that Vic um, is super excited about. He loves, uh, you know, the, the Australian uh, Kiwi players. I think he had three at Mississippi state, notably um, Chloe Bibby, who is um, an incredible guard forward um, at Maryland right now. She transferred after he left, um, but was a you know vital part of, of that offense when his time at Mississippi State. And I think Kobe will be as well. And, and part of the Maryland offense that what averaged almost 100 points a game. So uh, good to have scores, I guess. <laughs> yes, absolutely. He, he knows where to find them, uh, even outside the United States, for sure. I love that. So the last one, um, a, a player who I think more on potential at one point was ranked a, a number one. I think it finished in like a top 10 ranking in the junior college. Um, but Femme Masudi, I believe, um, and she was uh, originally uh, Suzukani, Femme Suzukani, but I, uh, the UT roster lister. Femme Masudi, um, six foot five, originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo, transferred from South Georgia Technical College, uh, a, a double double player you know just six five big uh was a juco kind of all-star um had had has all the all the natural size and natural gifts uh again harder to find tape as much on her but i think uh three years is what she'll have at ut so has some time to to grow in uh with some other big bodies on this roster no, absolutely. Um, I, I think that's the biggest thing is is the upside. Um, she's definitely – I haven't seen much. I've definitely tried to find um, as much as I can, but I, I really haven't seen much. But at 6'5", um, you know, double-double machine already, which is, um, you know, great to see already for a young player. Um, three years, though, I think that's going to be the biggest thing. You look at who is she going to be by the end of the season. I mean, even if you look at, you know, Deanna Gasson and, and you look at Lauren Ebo after – well, how they started the season versus how they end, they were different mm-hmm. players. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's going to be the biggest thing for Masudi is, is how can she grow? Um, you know, how can she learn? And um, I think that overall, she's going to be a great player. She's definitely the biggest question mark, which is new for me. I, I um, have never found it so difficult to learn uh, about a player, um, <laughs> but I, I think that she's going to be um, a really integral part of this offense um, probably in about two years. Yeah. Yeah, that's so. You talked about you know new coaches, JUCO players, big freshmen. We talked about the uh, the returners. You put all that together, and it's not just Alex and I sitting here 
thinking that this sounds about right. It, it seems that the peers uh, in the conference felt as much. This is the preseason number two ranked uh, team in the Big 12. I believe the AP had them as the fourth highest Big 12 school, but by Big 12 coaches, they were picked to finish second uh, behind Baylor. But don't forget, number seven, Baylor is replacing Kim Mulkey and her dozen conference titles obviously nikki cullen comes in with a WNBA pedigree and and could just hit the ground running there but um you know in the conference with uh, and ashley jones for i was for a top probably 15 iowa state team who can average 25 points a game a uh, really good west virginia team that has to like texas replace a high draft pick but brings a lot back i think they're number 19 um OU replaces Sherry Cole, who who left after 25 years. Um, Oklahoma State, you never want to take them lightly. What do you think of the Big 12? And, and is is finishing second realistic for Texas? Or you know, I, finishing first is a, is a, is a tall task. There's still a lot of talent on that Baylor team. Um, but I mean, is that is that realistic after a team that struggled to get it going in early in conference season, but really got it towards the end of the season working? Is, is that how does that sound to you uh, as far as realistic expectations? Sounds about right. Um, you know, I really like West Virginia this year. Um, mm. I, I liked I liked them last year, and and I really liked them this year, um, which is obviously bad news here. But um, I think that overall, uh, a top three is is attainable. Um, I, I think that it's Baylor, West Virginia, and Texas. Um, and I think really on any given day that order could change. Um, I don't think Baylor is going to be as strong as they've been in years, um, not just because of a coaching change. I think obviously, you know, you look at Kim Mulkey and what she's been able to do, she's going to build, you know, another powerhouse at, and uh, in Baton Rouge. But mm -hmm. I think that overall, um, you know, it really just depends. Um, Baylor's talent level, at least in my opinion, looks, looks uh, a little lower than it's been in, in recent years. Um, but, you know, I, I felt that last year and, and obviously they uh, surprised everybody. So I think that uh, any, any, any given day, anything, but I think Texas is top three. Um, you know, when, you know, I, I can't say this enough. When you have Vic Schaefer as your head coach, you don't lose a lot of basketball games. Um, and when you have the talent that you have and, and then the talent that will continue to come for Texas, um, you know, it's not something that that even in a down year, you look at seven or eight, maybe nine, ten losses. Um, it's still a pretty good season. So I just have a hard time seeing them any lower than three. Um I think Oklahoma is going to be really good. Oklahoma State um, probably is, I think, up there with four or five even this year. Um, you know, they're doing some different things down there, and and they really had a really good recruiting class coming up. So I, I like them as well. Um, but I think Texas at two is fair. I, I, I really do. Um, and even Texas at one. Um, but even at three, you look at three teams that are going to be in the NCAA tournament, and, mm -hmm. and once you get there, that's that's all that matters. That's right, especially for a Vic team. We We saw that. Last year, it's an interesting one because, of course, the Big 12 has some talent. There's going to be some really tough nights. But the interesting thing with with this schedule is, is Coach Schaefer wants no games off. He wants to play the best. You look at their schedule, and it's some of the best teams who, who kept playing after Texas's Cinderella run. Remember, they made it to the Final Eight. Some of these teams played uh, a couple games after that, which is saying something. But, I mean... I, I have heard people call this the toughest out of conference schedule in the country. And we talked in our men's preview about Chris Beard really preferring a nice, easy kind of pad, the, the win numbers. And I think Vic is, is much less about the, the numbers and more about the kind of process, the results, the playing the best, sharpening yourself against the best. But 
walk us through this schedule a little bit and uh and I mean, just what do you think about Stanford, Tennessee, A&M, Arizona to go with that tough Big 12 conference? You know, it's definitely different for me. In my time covering Vic and uh, Mississippi State, you saw a lot of Jackson State. You saw a lot of Southeast Missouri. You didn't Mm -hmm. ever really see him go out. And, of course, when you play in the SEC and and you play against, you know, Tennessee and and LSU and and other teams that that continue to perform every year, you know, it's a little different. Missouri's been good during those peaks as well. Um, But I've never seen him go out like this, and I think this is for a reason. You have a new coaching staff. You have a pretty young roster. Um, Notably, he didn't schedule any of these games at home. I think that he wants his team to realize quickly that you don't get to play, you know, at home in the NCAA tournament and you don't get to play bad teams in the NCAA tournament, which Mm -hmm. is the end goal for, for every basketball team and for every basketball season. Um, And so going out against the best, um, you know, it's, it's really, um, you know, low risk, high reward. I think, Um, you know, if you go and get embarrassed at, you know, say number two Stanford on the road, um, they're number two for a reason and, and you have a lot to learn from and you, and you have a lot to, you know, measure as a benchmark for your season. You know, this is how we felt when we walked off the court after getting blown out by Stanford, which I don't think that will be the case, but I, you know, just when you look at that and, and that possibility um, you know, but if you do play poorly on the road, uh, you know, against a Jackson state or an Idaho or, and you lose those games and, you know, your season, looks a whole lot different. Um, so when you're playing the top turn, you know, the top teams, uh, tournament teams, I think that's what you're, you're, you're looking at a benchmark for your team, seeing where you're at, seeing how tough they are, how legit are these, are these ladies, you know, coming out here and and playing, how bad do they want it? Do they want to compete against the best? Um, and then also in, in the reverse thing, you know, this is the expectation at Texas. We play the best, we beat the best, we compete with the best, um, and I think that's a great recruiting tool as well. Um, you know, a lot of teams um, can beat, you know, schools from from smaller markets, smaller conferences, you know, smaller talent pools. Um, but the best teams, the best teams can beat all the teams. And I think that's ultimately what Vic Schaefer's going for. I love that. And just to recap, that's that second game of the season at Stanford a week later at Tennessee. Two weeks after that, they go to College Station to take on his former uh, home, I guess, to the, to the Texas A&M Aggies, and then a neutral site versus Arizona in Vegas uh, to wrap up that that non-conference. So, so you will learn a lot about Texas before you even kick off the Big 12, but you will start learning about it with an exhibition game against Oklahoma Baptist. I, I was doing my research. That is the alma mater of Oral Roberts, uh, who later obviously had a university named after him and is a, is a name known to many, um, 11-4. Uh, so that's that's only a few days away. They are they are doing this exhibition. Um, they kick off the season a couple of days later with a doubleheader with the men's basketball team against New Orleans. I mean, the fans will get to be there. Vic is excited. He said that the fans uh, will influence their style of play. You've never seen his team with you know a full uh, home court advantage. So that that will be interesting. Hope everyone turns out for that. Anything else, Alex, that, that we didn't get to chat about that you're thinking or feeling for this Texas team that you want to share with our listeners? I think definitely 
really that game against Texas A&M, I think, is when we're going to find out if this team is legit or not. Um, you know, I, I think even even if they go on two against Stanford and Tennessee, um, you know, it's a young team. There's there's a lot of of inexperience, a lot of turnover, a lot um, that we we haven't seen. Um, how they're going to figure out how to play together. That takes time. Um, and, and that's to be expected. Um, but that December 5th game at Texas A&M, which um, you can pretty much book um, every season, as long as Vic Schaefer and Gary Blair are still coaching. Um, that's, I think that's going to really determine what kind of season this is, what kind of team this is. Um, and you saw that, you know, last year, I, I think that that was a big coming out game for them. Um, you know, they had kind of struggled um, and they went out against Texas A&M and even in a loss, competed way better than anybody thought they could. Um, and I, I think that's the biggest thing is just um, where they're at in that game will be such a crucial moment in the season. And then just who's going to step up, you know, who's, who's going to be um, the person that, that fills obviously a couple of huge voids and, and uh, a lot of points to be scored. Um, but that's exciting I, to me. You know, I, I love, I love young teams. I, I love watching them figure each other out Um and then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, is how much bigger is this this Texas team going to get in the future? Um, you know, six players over six feet definitely stands out mm-hmm. uh, to me. Um, and I think that that's going to be really important come tournament time um, because that's ultimately what this team is, is being built for, what this team is being conditioned for um, is the NCAA tournament. Um, you know, fix a competitor, and, and don't get me wrong, um, I don't think he ever wants to – um, walk off the court with a loss. Um, but when it gets, when it gets serious is, is is come March, um, and, and April. Um, and I think that's what ultimately this team is being built for, um, today with the schedule, um, and recruiting and everything else. Um, it's, he's going to make a lot of noise this year. I, I went on this show last year and, and said that Texas to the elite eight, you can book it. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, it definitely raised some, some eyebrows, but here we are again. Um, I would be shocked if this team didn't make the sweet 16. Um, I'm not going to go elite eight just because we got some youth. Um, but I will say that that Texas women's basketball wins a championship in the next two years. Whoa, man, Alex, you are bringing, Heaters, I love it. Uh, that, that, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have you on uh, more often because you're nailing picks and and you're making me you're, you're making me feel those butterflies. I love that pick. That's amazing. We could use more of you every week with that level of optimism. But if folks want to get more of you, uh, your content, we know you're, you're you're writing, you're you're online. Where can they follow you? Where can they find your stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a little bit all over the place. Um, I contribute. Um, for Swish Appeal, which is SB Nation's um, women's basketball site. Um, and uh, so you can find any kind of articles there. Um, I contribute still um, for Sports Illustrated um, for women's basketball, women's volleyball, and women's soccer. I mean, that's at Cowbell Corner. Um, and then just my Twitter, I, I always am posting all kinds of crazy stuff. That's actually Alex Gomez SI um, is my Twitter handle. So you can always find me somewhere writing about some sports um, all across the country. Oh, I love it. Alex, you're, you're one of my favorite interviews every year. So glad to have it. We'll have to have you back on soon. And thanks again. Absolutely. All right, let's take a whip around the league. We'll take a look at the, the world according to uh, burnt orange lenses. We'll take a look at the NFL, the NBA, uh, and uh, kick it on home with some Godzilla Tron. So Gerald, first, we'll, we'll run around the Big 12. We've done this every week. 
Interesting, as we had a bye week, had a chance to watch some other teams. You obviously had some things going on, but uh, <laughs> Oklahoma State, we knew it was coming. We were hoping Texas would give it to them, but they got their first loss. Uh, they've played with fire in, in those razor thin Tom Herman margins. Essentially bit them in the in the tail. They lost 24-21 to a, um, a relatively mirrored Iowa State team. I mean, Iowa State plays a similar game, especially on defense. Iowa State got a late fourth and two stop. What do you think of uh, what do you think of this one? Both teams involved. Well, it's it was weird. It's hard to call like a twenty four twenty one game a shootout, but it felt kind of like um, like old heavyweight boxing where you're kind of exchanging haymakers a little bit. Where it's not slow, it's not it's not or it's it's slow. It's not really flashy, but like they kind of just like we're we're throwing body blows to see who folded. And the problem with playing the game that Oklahoma State is playing right now is that like they're not necessarily equipped to do that every week especially um if you know, iowa state put together a couple of quick like put it together a quick score and oklahoma state's not necessarily built to uh respond to that now that being said um spencer sanders threw one of the best passes i've seen in his four years at oklahoma state in that game to, to set him up for a, a late score but uh it's brocktober and like that's what o- yeah. iowa state does in october uh is wins wins games and so it wasn't necessarily unexpected uh but i, w- I didn't expect it either that's a weird thing to say yeah, I mean, I, I think we saw Spencer Sanders had that good play, but overall their offense is, is lacking. Their defense is really good, and I think we, we saw, again, what I, what I wish would have basically played out for, for Texas. I mean, Purdy had the game that I, I hoped Thompson could have, which was just efficient, connect on your passes, slowly build up some yards, take your shots when you get them, and, and it felt like, like I predicted that Oklahoma State didn't have the corners to hang with a with a big time elite receiver. Now Xavier Hutchinson is is bigger than than our uh, Xavier Worthy, but you know he he had I think buck fifty at least, and they called back his one long touchdown because he accidentally did one D on high step, which was a very 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 ridiculous call. He got the touchdown later on in the drive, but line only allowed two sacks and two hurries for Iowa State. That was the difference. That's yep. why they were able to pull it out, and Texas wasn't. Speaking of pulling it out. Gerald, OU eat a win against Kansas. It ended up being 35-23 with a late icing touchdown to try to uh, keep the voters completely from kicking them out of the playoff picture. But another team who just is playing with fire and somehow just keeps keeps winning. <laughs> OU should have, could have, would have, I don't know, in, in, in an ideal world, lost to Kansas. How, how the heck did they get out of there with that win? Well, when I thought you said pulling it out, I thought you were going to talk about the Caleb Williams, like, I, <laughs> I, I don't know if that was, like, a negative IQ play or, like, the biggest IQ football play I've ever seen, but, like, that legitimately, because Kansas got the stop that they needed to go down and win the game. Like, yeah. if Caleb Williams doesn't pull that ball out, then we can retire every Texas lost to Kansas meme and replace them with, oh, you lost to Kansas memes. It's so, like, that literal play right there was the difference and how and how OU was able to, to build up that like twelve point cushion because the like, legitimately I'm I I'm in my living room so my, my son was born on uh, was born on on Thursday morning we came home on Friday and then like everybody was just sleeping on Saturday so I had a baby and I was watching <laughs> the game and I was like I don't I don't like I I can't scream because there's a you know a three day old baby <laughs> on my chest but like I I legitimately thought that Kansas got the stop to win the game and then that play happened. And I don't necess- I don't want to adjudicate the legality of that or like what would have happened if a player took you know, Caleb Williams out of that play prior, what the flag would have been. They won the game. It was ugly. You know, we, we're like, we're going to have to retire the win your clunkers or win ugly thing at some point with OU because all they've done is win ugly. 
Yeah. I mean, I think they had like a 60 point win against like, what was it? Southwestern, Eastern, Southern, Northern Sisters Missouri or something, or something like that. Yeah. Whoever it was, they were like one of the worst FCS teams. But anyways, besides that, you're right. Um, I will take the time to adjudicate a jail. That ticked me off. That was an <laughs> utterly horrendous officiating decision. The big 12 media, even when they addressed it after the game, refused to kind of address the, the elephant in the room that that just wasn't a legal play. Uh, like you said, what, what would have happened if, People try to add this to the playbook, this ridiculous double handoff type of thing when the possession is stopped as a second mesh kind of play somehow. You know, what what happens if you take that player out? I don't know. It just it opens up a nasty chapter for college football if that's a wrinkle that you can do, which, again, it was not legal as the rules are stated today. National media who have no Texas bias or OU bias have pretty much unanimously come out and agreed that that was a an absolutely atrocious play that in no way should have counted uh, and OU should have been stopped on fourth down with forward progress. There's no way you can read the rule book and, and determine that that was okay. But again, it's just OU, right? They hold. And, and actually, I also appreciated national media who don't maybe watch OU every game or just caught it this game, like tweeting out various holding penalties that didn't get called against OU. Even though there were some penalties, there were still another like eight that could have been called. And people are starting to realize that OU basically it's a, a feature and not a bug just to have <laughs> 50 holding 50 offenses or defensive holding plays uh, you know every game and see how many of the ref is actually audacious enough to call but anyways this is not a, a podcast about OU so I'll keep it moving tech fell in a comeback effort from Kansas State and I watched this one on I actually was with some friends during the bye week just watching games and uh, we had friendly wagers in in on games and and When they were up 14 points, I asked a good friend of mine to give me odds, and he gave me on – we can't bet more than $5, but he gave me 10 to 1 odds. If if Kansas State came back, you know, he would give me 50. If I lost Tech held on, I would owe him 5. Well, I won $50. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, Matt Wells also won whatever his buyout is because he no longer is the coach in Lubbock, and I feel bad. I, I legitimately do. The guy started off hot. He's going to be bowl eligible probably, or at least this is an improvement from previous seasons. And in a post-Mike Leach, this is this is a pretty decent season for Texas Tech. You need to understand your station. Chris Beard leaves you. No one wants to coach there in football either. They'll probably get a good coach because the people they're talking about are good. But, I, you know, Matt Wells didn't do that bad of a job, and I kind of hate how hard the fans turned on him this year. But we have our first... Uh, domino in the coaching carousel. Maybe not the first in the country, but at least the Big 12. So, pour one out for Matt Wells. It feels like it's the reason why they pulled the triggers because they're trying to get in early on the Jeff Trailer slash Sonny Dykes uh, arms race is what it's going to be. Uh, I mean, like, you're you're knocking on the door of your first bowl berth since 2017. So, in like four or five seasons. But it sucks. I think Matt Wells is a good dude, and I think he'll probably end up... Um, He'll end up being all right in the long run, especially because he'll have some some money to dry his eyes with. <laughs> money makes it all better. No, uh, Sonny Dykes, if you're not familiar, he there's no reason he really right now should leave the SMU job to go to Tech. It's a step down. I hate to say that. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Uh, sorry to our fans in Lubbock. Uh, but uh, it, it is. But Dykes' dad, obviously, pre- Mike Leach, the most legendary uh, Texas Tech coach and a character himself, Spike Dykes. So there is a a mama's calling kind of feeling there. And then also uh, Jeff Trailer. If LSU doesn't snap him up, I'm kidding. Uh, only half kidding. Um, but yeah, has just been doing incredible things with UTSA. But speaking of some other Texas teams, since falling to Texas, I just wanted to point it out. We've talked about how good UTSA is. We didn't 
play them. We didn't play UTEP, but we did play Rice. And and since Texas played a winless Rice, they're, they've won three out of four. They did have to play UTS in, in there, and they lost 45-0. to zero. But Rice on a, on a little roll, you love to see it. I love the, the rest of the, the, the teams in Texas who aren't, you know, in the big 12, basically I love them having success. I'm okay with that. So, so rice getting, getting a little thing going. And then, you know, just a reminder since Texas beat Louisiana, who, you know, fans will joke and say, well, you beat Louisiana Lafayette. It isn't that team. This is a Billy Napier team. They've railed off uh, six straight wins, 30 point win over an app state team that obviously showed they were good. Uh, close win over a good Arkansas state team. They basically have Liberty at the end of the season to see if they can go undefeated minus Texas. That will be a good one. Th- three weeks. So, Play Texas and uh, and you know your team will gel and you'll do good things afterwards. Not going to spend a ton of time, but the NFL horns this week. Uh, I'll just roll through. Quandre Diggs had five solo tackles. Puna Ford had to best him, having six total tackles, one tackle for loss. Maybe the best of the bunch, though, as we talk about the punters. Five punts, forty-eight point four average, sixty-five long, three inside the twenty. You know I'm talking about Michael Dixon. Also, the secondary having some tackles. Adrian Phillips, six. Brandon Jones, five. Our, our return man du jour, the NFL, one catch for 11 yards, but Devin DuVernay also had two kick returns for 45 and two punt returns for 37. The guy knows how to uh, how to contribute all over the field. You love to see it. But I want to just point out, leave some time here for the NBA horns. There were some interesting stat lines this week. Jared Allen is probably not the most famous uh, longhorn in the NBA except for having the best haircut, but he put up a 21-16 game. He's kind of just slowly being everything the Cavs want him to. A lot of Nets fans are ruining letting him go in that trade that brought James Harden. I joked that, you know, Jared Allen was the winner of that trade because he got paid by the Cavs. <laughs> but uh, he is legitimately shooting like 80-plus percent through five games, and it's not purely dunks like you imagine it is. He's developed a post game with a couple baby hooks and a little kind of runner floater move, and people are starting to take notice. He is legitimately turning into one of the better two-way rebound block shot scoring uh, bigs in the game. Exciting to see for him. Texas is going to be like big man you at some point in the NBA. Like that's really, like I think they are at this point, maybe kind of, I mean, they're like what four? I think fourth in the country and like act like active NBA players currently, which is third, third, they they are behind, uh, they're ahead of North Carolina. They're behind only Duke and Kentucky. Suck it, Krzyzewski. Ahead of ahead of uh, uh, Kansas as well. So uh, keep, keep enjoying it. uh, Other teams. Okay. So, we know that one of these, the other is a surprise. Kevin Durant averaging 31.9 points per game, 9.8 rebounds, and just a hair under six assists through five games. That's very good chance that he's the NBA player of the month for the month of October, getting that MVP candidacy started early. But as we said, if you're following a team, Brooklyn Nets are your NBA team of the most Longhorns, both with coaches and players. The other Longhorn, LaMarcus Aldridge, was playing in, in one of the, the early season marquee games. It was the, the Ben Simmons-less Sixers, but still the, the, a good Sixers team versus the, the Brooklyn Nets, two of the best teams in the East. And in the last minute of the game, if you notice, in addition to a sadly not Spurs, Patty Mills, love you, Patty, uh, mm-hmm. next to him, another former Spur, LaMarcus Aldridge was in the, the lineup of death, basically playing in the final minute uh, tie game rotation for Brooklyn. Uh, he had a dunk and free throw to put them up to secure the lead in that one. Um, it had another, I think he had a 20-point game already this year, so Aldridge coming back and, and looking healthy to go with Kevin Durant looking like the best player in the league are all good things for Longhorns. 
Love it. And the Nets are like my, I'm not really a basketball guy. I kind of follow players and I'm the NBA because I was, there's a long conversation to be had there. But like, I like seeing LaMarcus playing well and I'm glad he came back from his, his health scares from last year. Absolutely. And, and Coach Royal Ivy, we wish him nothing but wins as well. But the last one is, is Miles Turner. So a guy who was a defensive player of the year candidate the past three years, we know what he can do blocking shots, pretty decent rebounder. But he had a game that put him in rarefied air. Uh, earlier this week, he had a 40-point double-double, 40 points, 10 rebounds, three blocks to go with it, and hit five three-pointers. He joins, like, video game all-star team company of players who've ever done that stat line, 40 points, 10 rebounds, five three-pointers in a game, and three blocks. That is LeBron James, James Harden, the aforementioned Kevin Durant, Boogie, which I love to see him in there. DeMarcus Cousins, such an interesting player if he stayed healthy. And then Cousins, Vince, and T-Mac are the only players. Remember, I just read one, two, three, four, five, six, and now seven. The seventh player all time to put up those numbers or above. Just a really awesome game, and that's why, even though Katie's crushing it, Miles Turner gets me my longhorn in the pros of the week. Gerald, let's wrap it up with our final segment. Godzilla Tron. Jared, what have you been watching on your giant screen or maybe your phone since you are up uh, with with the baby at, at all hours? What are you consuming? Uh, yeah, so there's there's been a lot. Um, you know, there, there's been a lot of sleep. Uh, you know, I'm more of like a podcast guy when I'm holding a, a baby late night because I don't want the light, the light sensitivity. Fair. But uh, my wife and I carved out some time to watch Dune Part 1, uh, which we really enjoyed. Um, it's like... I love like the the like m- like the the like it's honestly kind of like Game of Thrones in space almost where you've got these warring houses and you've got betrayal and pl- political machinations and it was really good very visually stunning movie and thankfully it was on HBO so we could watch it from the house and not have to deal with that um, really enjoyed it I had a great time with it and I'm excited that they greenlit the second part of it um, this is a weird one but but we've been honestly we're in survival mode right with with small children and so uh, my son has been getting some more screen time and so we we caught there's a Disney Plus show or I guess a Disney Channel show called The Ghost and Molly McGee and it's like a it's like a fun kid show and it's um like this this there's a ghost that's supposed to be haunting this little girl's house and she like befriends it and she's like she's really super positive and I appreciate it. But the reason why I jumped out to me is because it's actually the head writer is a Texas ex. Um, Madison Bateman is her name. Actually, Kyle and I knew her really well in college, but she's the head writer on that show. Um, you so buried the lead. I buried the lead there. Cause nobody else listened. Maybe three people listening to know Madison, but we know Madison. <laughs> uh, I caught it because of that. And my son really likes it. So that, and then Muppet haunted mansion is also on Disney plus, And we enjoyed that cause it's spooky season, but it's not actually scary. Very cool. Nice little, uh, nice uh, layered and rounded list. Gerald, I don't know if you uh, heard this. Um, the the end of the podcast I mentioned to Mike Roach. Great having Mike on. Um, the maybe originator of the Godzilla Tron segment. But uh, mentioned to Mike that I finished Deadwood. Um, okay. Gerald, I, I, I saw one of your tweets about HBO Top 5 shows that Deadwood is in there for you. I know you love this show. Let me just say it again uh, for our listeners who listen to the the Tuesday podcast. I won't repeat it too, too much. But I did say then that I was dying for Gerald to uh, to hear what I had to say. Um, 
I loved it. I'm saving the movie just for a little bit because I don't want it to be over. I don't want to be done and not have any any yep. new Deadwood. You know what I mean? Um, but the show, like, I, I feel just I feel an anger that they didn't get more time, another season or two, because it felt like that third. While it was it was good, you know, I felt like it set up another season that could have come really well after it. And so it kind of stinks that you didn't get another full season. I understand this was early days when the, the cost that Milch was, was, you know, racking up per episode was <laughs> just astronomical. That was before they understood the, the scope of game of Thrones. But, uh, you know, it, it, it is a good show. It is a, it is probably even a, a great show. It is, there are aspects of it that it's done as good or better than every show. The sense of, dialogue of character of place um they just do such a good job creating layered people the way that that place in itself is a character i mean i just uh, i really liked it it's something that you and a couple other people i respect have have hyped up i will say or said you know rated it highly in those types of lists that, that that one will do and so i was not skeptical but i was really hoping like i want it to be good i want to enjoy it and i did i i think i'm not sure i'll take some time to revisit where it'll rank in my pantheon but i, I definitely like it deserves to at least be thought of and in those conversations whether it's up there for me or not it's it's not too far off and and so in that sense i think it absolutely lived up to it i mean it's from an acting standpoint, I don't know if there's an ensemble outside of maybe Game of Thrones and potentially The Sopranos that did a better job, like, top to bottom. Like, every person in Deadwood carried their freaking weight, man. It's just such mm. a good ensemble piece, and that's what I appreciate it. I appreciate about it the most. Like, everybody just fit, and it made sense, and it worked, and it was just top to bottom. And that was, that's what I appreciate about it. Feels to me like a good rewatch candidate because you you probably gain more each time you see it of those yep. people outside of just the main character. So the other thing I finished another I like it as an ensemble piece was Ted Lasso. Finally caught up to you, Gerald. Watched the the second season now. Just can't wait for the third season. I I won't go for any spoilers in case folks haven't watched it. But the heel turn in the second season was interesting. Didn't necessarily see it coming. Beloved character early on, but uh, the Jose Mourinho uh, parallels that I drew were interesting. I'll have to yep. Google and see if other people did. Um, Very intentional. But, okay, that makes sense. All right, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but uh, as, a, as, a, as a poor Manchester United fan, that, 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 one st- that stung me. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I loved it. I, I, I echoed all the things. I heard all the things you said in my head as I watched it, it play out, and I really loved the the mental health aspect. And just 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 love all those guys. I like spending time. The the, the beard episode where they kind of do like a mini movie one off, yeah. like you know, hangout was so weird and out of character. But I kind of didn't hate it. <laughs> it. Like it was it was weird, and there were moments where it was really good, and you got good beard moments. It was just mm-hmm. too weird for me, and I think. Yeah. I, I think I would have hated it less if I binged it, but like that yeah. being my Ted Lasso for the week was like, I'm not cool with that. Uh, all right, Gerald, I'm going to kick it to you because old habits die hard and you do a better outro than me <laughs> as proven by my two past episodes. Close this out. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. If you like what we do, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We'll get the show out there. Share this with your friends. Wherever you found out whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, anywhere where you can find five podcast content. You can find Kyle and myself. Kyle, where can the good folks find you on the internet? 
Oh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Kyle Carpenter. You can also follow the Texas Pregamer at Texas Pregamer. Follow me on Twitter. I am at GH Goodridge. I'm tweeting a lot right now because I'm not working <laughs> and I'm usually trapped under one of two babies that exist in my house currently. So you can follow me there. I'm tweeting a lot. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Longhorn Pod. We're on Facebook and Instagram, the Longhorn Republic, or shoot us an email, longhornrepublicpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. We'll see you back next week. And until next time, okay. Welcome, like Cotter. Welcome back.